Section 4 of Roman History, the Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1. Augustus, B.C. 31 to A.D. 14, Part 3. The elder Julia was the child of Augustus by Scribonia, betrothed while still in the nursery to a young son of Antonius, she was promised in jest to Cotesan, a chieftain of the Getae, and then to the nephew of the emperor, Marcellus. At his death, she passed at the age of seventeen, and with her the hopes of the succession, to Agrippa's house, where an earlier wife was displaced to make room for her. Eleven years she lived with him, and when he died, Tiberius must in his turn divorce the Agrippina whom he loved, and take the widowed princess to his house. She had been brought up strictly, almost sternly, by her father. Profligate as he had been himself in early life, his standard of womanly decorum was a high one, and he wished to see in Julia the austere dignity of the Roman matrons of the old days. But she was readier to follow the examples of his youth than the disguises and hypocrisies of his later life. She scorned the modest homeliness of Livia and the republican simplicity of Augustus, aired ostentatiously her pride of race, and loved profusion and display. Once freed by marriage from the restraints of her father's home, she began a career of license unparalleled even for that age. She flung to the winds all womanly reserves, paraded often in her speech a cynical disdain for conventional restraints, and gathered round her the most reckless of the youth of Rome, till her excesses became a scandal and a byword through the town. The emperor was the last to know of his dishonoured name. He had marked indeed with grave displeasure her love of finery and sumptuous living, and had even destroyed a house which he built upon too grand a scale. But for years no one dared to tell him more till at last someone, perhaps Livia, raised the veil, and the whole story of her life was known. He heard of her long career of guilty license, and how but lately she had roved at night through the city with her train of revellers, and made the forum the scene of her worst orgies, dishonouring with bold words and shameless deeds the very tribune where her father stood but yesterday to speak in favour of his stricter marriage laws. He was told, though with little show of truth, that she was plotting a still darker deed and urging her paramour to take his life. The blow fell very hardly on the father and clouded all the peace of his last years. At first his rage passed quite from his control. Her desks were ransacked, her slaves were tortured, and all the infamous details poured out before the Senate. When he was told that Phoebe, the freedwoman and confidant of Julia, had hung herself in her despair, he answered grimly, Would that I were Phoebe's father. Nothing but her death seemed likely to content him. Then came a change. He shut himself away from sight and would speak of her no more. She was exiled to a cheerless island, 2 B.C., and though the fickle people in Tiberius even pleaded for her pardon, she was at most allowed at Regium a less gloomy prison. There, in her despairing loneliness, she must have felt a lingering agony of retribution. 
she heard how the hand of vengeance fell upon her friends and paramours and harder still to bear how child after child mysteriously died and only two were left agrippa thrust away from sight and pity on his petty island and julia who had followed in her mother's steps and was an exile and a prisoner like herself such family losses and dishonours might well embitter the emperor's last years but other causes helped to deepen the gloom which fell upon him since agrippa's death there was no general whom he could trust to lead his armies no strong hand to curb the restless tribes of the half-conquered north or roll back from the frontiers the tide of war he sent his grandsons to the distant armies but they were young and inexperienced and firmer hands than theirs were needed to save the eagles from disgrace one great disaster at this time revealed the danger and sent a thrill of horror through the empire the german tribes upon the gallic border had kept unbroken peace of late and many of them seemed quite to have submitted to the roman rule a few years before indeed some hordes had dashed across the rhine upon a plundering foray and in the course of it had laid an ambush for the roman cavalry and driven them and lollius their leader backward in confusion and disgrace but that storm had rolled away again and the tribes sent hostages and begged for peace roman influence seemed spreading through the north as year by year the legions and the traders carried the arts of settled life into the heart of germany but in an evil hour quintilius verus was sent thither in command the rule seemed too lax and the change too slow for his impatience and he set himself to consolidate and civilize in hot haste discontent and disaffection spread apace but verus saw no danger and had no suspicions the german chieftains when their plots were laid plied him with fair assurances of peace lured him to leave the rhine and march toward the visurgis Weser, through tribes that were all ready for revolt wiser heads warned him of the coming danger but in vain he took no heed he would not even keep his troops together and in hand at last the schemers armenius hermann at their head thought the time had come they began the rising at a distance and made him think it only a local outbreak in a friendly country so they led him on through forest lands then rose upon him on all sides in a dangerous defile the legions taken by surprise as they were marching carelessly hampered with baggage and camp followers could make little head against their foes they tried to struggle on through swamps and woods where falling trees crushed them as they passed along and barricades were piled by unseen hands while wind and rain seemed leagued together for their ruin three days they stood at bay and strove to beat off their assailants who returned with fresh fury to the charge then their strength or courage failed them the more resolute spirits slew themselves with their own hands and the rest sank down to die nine a d of three full legions few survived and for many a year the name of that field of death the saltus teutoburgiensis sounded ominously in roman ears in the capital there was a panic for a while a short time before they had heard the tidings that pannonia was in revolt and now came the news that germany was all in arms and forcing the roman lines 
stripped as they were of their army of defence, might pour into Italy, which seemed a possible, nay, easy prey. The danger, indeed, was not so imminent. Tiberius, and after him Germanicus, maintained the frontier and avenged their soldiers. But the loss of prestige was very great, and the emperor felt it till his death. For months of mourning he would not trim his beard or cut his hair, and Varus, give me back my legions, was the moan men often heard him utter. He felt it the more keenly because soldiers were so hard to find. At the centre no one would enlist. In vain he appealed to their sense of honour. In vain he had recourse to stringent penalties. He was forced at last to enrol freedmen and make up his legions from the rabble of the streets. He had seen long since with alarm that the population was decreasing, had restocked the dwindling country towns with colonists, had tried to promote marriage among all classes, had forced through a reluctant senate the Lex Papia Popaia by which celibacy was saddled with penal disabilities. But men noticed with a sneer that the two consuls after whom the law was named were both unmarried, and it was a hopeless effort to arrest such social tendencies by legislation. The central countries of the empire could not now find men to fill the ranks. The veterans might be induced to forsake the little glebes of which they soon grew weary, but others would not answer to the call. Whole regions were almost deserted, and the scanty populations had little mind for war. So the distant provinces became the legion's recruiting ground, and the last comers in the empire must defend it. Under the pressure of such public and domestic cares, we need not wonder that the emperor became moody and morose, and that the unlovely qualities of earlier days began to reappear. He shunned the gentle courtesies of social life, would be present at no festive gathering, disliked even to be noticed or saluted. Increasing weakness gave him an excuse for failing to be present in the Senate. A few picked men could represent the body, and the emperor's bedchamber became a privy council. He heard with petulance that the exiles in the islands were trying to relax the rigor of their lot and living in comfort and in luxury. Stringent restrictions were imposed upon their freedom. He heard of writings that were passed through men's hands in which his name was spoken of with caustic wit and scant respect. The books must be hunted out at once and burnt, and the authors punished if they could be found. The bitter partisanship with which Titus Labienus had expressed his republican sympathies, and the meaning look with which he turned over pages of his history, which could be read only after he was dead, have made his name almost typical of the struggle between despotism and literary independence. Cassius Severus said he must be burnt himself if the memory of Labienus's work must be quite stamped out, and his was accordingly the first of the long list of cases in which the old laws of treason, the leges maestatis, were strained to reach not acts alone, but words. A much more familiar name, the poet Ovid, is brought before us at this time. The spoiled child of the fashionable society of Rome, he had early lent his facile wit to amuse the careless worldlings round him, had made a jest of the remonstrances of serious friends who tried to win his thoughts to politics and busy life, and had squandered all his high gifts of poetry 
on frivolous or wanton themes. His conversational powers or his literary fame attracted the notice of the younger Julia, and he was drawn into the gay circle that surrounded her. There, in an evil hour, it seems, he was made the confidant of dangerous secrets, and was one of the earliest to suffer when the emperor's eyes at last were opened. To the would-be censor and reformer of the public morals, who had turned his back upon the follies of his youth, the poet's writings must have long been distasteful as thinly-veiled allurements to licentiousness. The indignant grandfather eyed them still more sternly, saw in them the source or the apology of wanton deeds, and drove their author from the Rome he loved so well in 8 A.D. to a half-civilized home at Tomi on the Scythian frontier, from which all his unmanly flatteries and lamentations failed to free him. It was time Augustus should be called away. He had lived too long for happiness and fame. His subjects were growing weary of their master, and some were ready to conspire against him. Still doubtless in the provinces, men blessed his name, as they thought of the prosperity and peace which he had long secured to them. One ship's crew of Alexandria, we read, when he put into Putioli, where they were, came with garlands, frankincense, and glad words of praise to do him honor. To him they owed, so ran their homage, their lives, their liberties, and the well-being of their trade. But those who knew him best were colder in their praises now, and scarcely wished that he should tarry long among them. For seventy-five years his strength held out, sickly and enfeebled as his body seemed. The summons came as he was coasting by Campania, and left him only time to crawl to Naples and thence to Nola, where he died. To those who stood beside his bed, his last words, if reported truly, breathed the spirit of his life. What think ye of the comedy, my friends? Have I fairly played my part in it? If so, applaud. The applause, if any, must be given to the actor rather than to the man, for the least lovely features of his character seemed most truly his. In his last years he was busy with the task of giving an account of his long stewardship. Long ago he had set on foot a survey of the empire, and maps had been prepared by the geographical studies of Agrippa. Valuations of landed property had been made as one step, though a very partial one, toward a uniform system of taxation. He had now gathered up for the benefit of his successors and the Senate all the varied information that lay ready to his hand. He had written out, with his own hand, we are told, the statistics of chief moment, an account of the population in its various grades of privilege, the muster-rolls of all the armies and fleets, and the balance-sheet of the revenue and expenditure of state. Taught by the experience of later years or from the depression caused by decaying strength, he added for future rulers the advice to be content with organizing what was won already, and not to push the frontiers of the army further. Before he died, he took a last survey of his own life, wrote out a summary of all the public acts which he cared to recall to memory, and left directions that the chronicle should be engraved on brazen tablets in the mausoleum built to do him honor. The chronicle may still be read, though not at Rome. In a distant province, at the town of Ancyra in Galatia, a temple had been built for the worship of Augustus, and the guardian priests had a copy of his own biography carved out at length in stone on one of the side walls. 
the temple has passed since then to other uses and witnessed the rites of a different religion houses have sprung up round it and partly hidden though probably preserve the old inscription until of late only a part of it could be deciphered but a few years ago the patient energy of the explorers sent out by the french government succeeded in uncovering the whole wall and making a complete copy of nearly all that had been written on it from the place where it was found its literary name is the monumentum Ancairanum. it is not without a certain grandeur which even those may feel who dispute the author's claim to greatness with stately confidence and monumental brevity of detail it unfolds the long roll of his successes disdaining seemingly to stoop to the pettiness of bitter words it speaks calmly of his fallen rivals veiling indeed in constitutional terms the illegalities of his career but misleading or unfair only by its silence not a word is there to revive the hateful memory of the proscriptions little to indicate the dire suspense of the war with sextus pompeius or the straits and anxieties of the long struggle with antonius but those questionable times of his career once passed the narrative flows calmly on it recounts with proud self-confidence the long list of battles fought and victories won the nations finally subdued under his rule the eastern potentates who sought his friendship the vassal princes who courted his protection it tells of the many colonies which he had founded and of the towns recruited by his veterans speaks of the vast sums that he had spent on shows and largesse for the people and describes the aqueducts and various buildings that had sprung up at his bidding to add to the material magnificence of rome for all these benefits the grateful citizens had hailed him as the father of his country to the provincials who read these lines it might seem perhaps that there were few signs in them of any feeling that the empire owed any duties to themselves a few words of reference to the sums spent in time of need upon their towns and that was all to the administrator it might seem a strange omission to say nothing of the great change in the ruling mechanism yet in what was there omitted lay his claim to greatness the plea which justified the empire was found in the newly organized machinery of government and in the peace and justice long secured to the whole civilized world high as he had risen in life he was to be raised to a yet higher rank after his death and the deified augustus became like many a succeeding emperor the object of a national worship a phenomenon so startling to our modern thought calls for some words of comment first we may note that polytheism naturally tends to efface the boundary lines between the human and the divine it peoples earth and air and water with its phantom beings of bounded powers and clashing wills and weaves with wanton hand the fanciful tissue of its legends in which it plays with the story of their loves and hates and fitful moods of passion till its deities can scarcely be distinguished from the mortal men and women in whose likeness they are pictured eastern thought moreover seldom scrupled to honour its great men with the names and qualities of godhead often in servile flattery sometimes perhaps in the spirit of a mystic creed it saw in the rulers who it feared a sort of avatar or incarnation of a power divine which it made the object of its worship the pharaohs of egypt and the monarchs of assyria were deified even in their lifetime by the language of inscriptions 
and in later times temples were raised in Asia Minor in honor of the governors of the day, so that Antonius and Cleopatra gave little shock to Eastern sentiment, when in their royal pageant they assumed the titles and symbols of Isis and Osiris. It was therefore on this side of the Roman world that the fashion of worshipping the emperor began. Even in the lifetime of Augustus, deputations came from the towns of Asia, which were anxious to set up altars and build temples in his honour. For a while, indeed, he treated them with coldness and sometimes with mockery. He yet could not quite repress the enthusiasm of their servile worship, which grew apace in the more distant provinces. Less credulous minds looked upon the tendency as only a fanciful way of symbolising a great fact. Much of the simple faith in the old legendary creeds had passed away before the critical spirit of Greek culture, and many thought that the heroes and gods of the old fables were but the great men of past times seen through the mist of popular fancy, till a divine halo gathered round their superhuman stature. If the sentiment of bygone days had made gods out of the men who sowed the seeds of art and learning, and tamed the savagery of early life, the wondering awe of ignorant folk might be allowed to crystallize still in the same forms, and to find a national deity in the great ruler who secured for the whole world the boon of civilized order. So reasoned probably the critical and unimpassioned, content to humor the credulous fancy of the masses, and to deal tenderly with an admiration which they did not share, but which it might be dangerous to thwart. Above all in Italy, the tendency in question found support and strength in a widespread feeling which had lingered on from early times, that the souls of men did not pass away at death, but still haunted their old homes, and watched as guardian lares over the weal and woe of the generations that came after. Offering and prayer seemed but a fitting token of respect, and might be useful to quicken their sympathies, or appease their envy. Thus every natural unity, the family, the clan, the canton, and the nation had their tutelary powers and special ritual of genuine home growth, while in nearly all besides the foreign influences had overlaid the old religious forms. It had been part of the conservative policy of Augustus to foster these old forms of worship, to repair the little chapels in the city wards, and to give priestly functions to the masters of the streets officially connected with them. Even while he lived he allowed the figure of his genius to be placed in the chapels beside the lares. At his death divine honours were assigned to it as to the rest, or rather it rose above them all as the imperial unity had towered above the petty districts which they were thought to guard. Temples rose to the deified Augustus, Altars smoked in every land, and guilds of Augustales were organized to do him priestly service, for the provinces were eager to follow the example of the imperial city, and their loyal zeal had even outstripped the reverence of Rome. The ruling powers were well pleased to see a halo of awfulness gather round their race, while subject peoples saw in the apotheosis of the monarch only a fitting climax to the majesty of his life and a symbol of the greatness of the empire. And so, succeeding monarchs in their turn were deified by pagan Rome, as saints were canonized by favor of the Pope. The Senate's vote gave divine honors with the title of Deus, and it was passed commonly as a matter of course, 
or withheld only as a token of abhorrence or contempt. End of section 4